speculate here, and I'm going to get your opinion on this, that there have been some achievements and there have been massive setbacks in this world, in the sphere of human rights, Lebanon and the Middle East. Uh, in, in your own humble assessment, the last decade, decade and a half, since you really put yourself into this world and now you're, you're still pursuing it in Paris, can you point to signs of progress and can you actually say that these are, these are things that are happening, they're positive and they're sort of shielded from the setbacks that you can say, no, we've actually accomplished something and it's, it's there to stay, that it will not be rolled back. Look, this is a very interesting question and a tough one because, I mean, history is never linear and particularly not in the Middle East and definitely not in the last decade. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's more of a roller coaster ride with uh, jumps forward, uh, leaps backwards, and a lot of things in the middle. What I think, you know, looking back, and maybe I'll talk more about Lebanon for a second, um, there has been some progress. I, the level of awareness, the discourse has evolved compared to, I think, where we were in 2006 on a number of issues. Um, I think, you know, for me, that year of 2006, I was working a lot on police torture. I was looking, working a lot on repression of uh, the LGBT community, uh, working a lot on migrant domestic workers. And Which are all still central issues. They're still central issues. Over these years, I've become convinced that change doesn't come easily. You have to take it. You have to take it, and you have to... Uh, I've been actually thinking a lot about this. You have to create a... Uh, there's a beautiful French term for it, convergence des luttes. You, okay, have, you, to have, to, yeah. you have to... Com struggles have to converge. Yes. And, uh, you know, I think I, when I uh, started working on some of these issues... I tended to think of them as, okay, I'm working on police torture. I'm working on the condition, you know, the rights of migrant domestic workers. Um, trying to, you know, we, uh, I remember organizing the first participation of migrant domestic workers at the Beirut Marathon yeah, at the right. time and having the sort of the T-shirts and the yes. energy. And, um, and so few migrant domestic workers were willing, because they were so afraid of the consequences of showing their faces, you know, 10 years later, and now this thing, it's, it's on its own. People are doing amazing things, and they are actually protesting. Yes. It doesn't mean they have obtained their rights, but the fact that they are protesting, you know, without being afraid of showing their faces is a sign of progress. So in a, in a way, yeah. you know, it's a frustration of the laws haven't changed. The police is still as corrupt. The police is still as abusive. Uh, but on the other hand, I think there is more awareness. I wouldn't say it's been just, it, it's been a... Cyclical movement with some progress, more awareness, uh, new forms of mobilization. I also think increasing awareness that change will not come easy and yeah. that you need to organize yourself for the long haul. But is that, what I'm getting from you is that the, the culture of fear is gone. That if somebody feels that their rights are being violated, they're more eager or more willing to now express that and demand accountability. Maybe the, maybe the actual policies have not changed, but citizenry is more, there's more expectation in the last 13, 14 years. Again, like most things in Lebanon, it's complicated. Yeah. I think, yes, we have seen new forms of mobilization. Uh, we have seen people who would not have expressed themselves before expressing themselves. 
So yes, that's the sort of positive side of the story. But I've also been very worried, particularly in the last year and a half, we are seeing a return to more, um, I would say, repressive practices. Yes. Uh, they are rounding up, the security forces are rounding up uh, activists, bloggers. It could be environmental activists, it could be political activists. They prevented the this year rally. the holding LGBT rally yes. uh, or conference. Um, there is a, so I think the, the, while people are expressing themselves more, the, I would, you know, the conservative, sectarian, militarized, you know, uh, complex, you know, the multi-industrial complex a la Libanese, at the Lebanese version, uh, is asserting itself again. Um, now, you know, are, you're, are these... You're, sorry. You're, sorry, you're comparing it now, I'm guessing, to the pre-2005 years. When you're saying yeah, it's, except it's in a different format, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think pre-2005, you, and, and I think it was a mistake, but I mean, the, the, there was a Syrian presence. Yes. Okay. Clearly, the, the repressive uh, nature of the politics, though, of the Syrian presence happened through a lot of local allies. Uh, but um, there was this sense of, okay, there is someone external, even though I think it was, a, it was maybe a naive and oversimplified way of, of looking at things. I think today power, in a way, is more diffuse, mm -hmm. and the challenges, the way Lebanese society is having to face its own accumulated problems over decades. Yeah. You know, what we are dealing with today is a direct legacy to the end of the Civil War. It is a direct legacy of the unaccountable culture of the uh, militiamen who traded their fatigues for uh, quote-unquote respectable suits. It is, we're paying the price of a economic model where basically, you know, we always talk about free enterprise in Lebanon. I actually think it's bullshit. It's a, it's a uh, what you have is a, a private sector that has had to grow in large part around so, sort of this political class to be able to exist because of the rampant uh, corruption that exists. And in a way, I think we are paying the price of that accumulation. It's true that in 2005, uh, there was a big hope and a big dream for change. Huh? I think, they, uh, uh, but it was it was short lived. But maybe, maybe I think the if you ask me today where I see the system going, as I think this is the current system that dominates Lebanon for me is doomed. Huh? It's it, it cannot reinvent itself. It has hit its limits. It's unable to deal with the country's problems. It's unable to present an economic vision. It's unable to reform itself. It doesn't mean that we know when the expiry date is on it because it remains quite strong. It's quite adaptable. It is able to, uh, you know, and it's basically consuming the country's resources, uh, human and natural, to the last bit. And the challenge for me in Lebanon today is uh, we're unable yet to see what tomorrow could look like, even though we all know that today in the current system, for me, is not sustainable. So there's two things I want to unpack here. The lack of progress on many things, whether it's human rights or, or any accountability, any form of accountability, you draw it to the inability to move from civil war mindset. So 29, 30 years post-civil war, we are still operating in that framework. Did I, did I get that right? Of course. I mean, look, take yeah. a very clear example. Hmm. What happened, the incident that happened uh, in the Shouf. Yeah. If anyone would go through and, and uh, pick on the rhetoric that was used, yeah. 
pick on the, uh, I mean, everything about that incident mm -hmm. and tell me this is not the language and the heritage of the Civil War. There is a, 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 a level of violence that is still contained in Lebanese society that is entertained by the political class uh, that has even actually in a way, even because it's been actually so long, that has been passed to a new generation that was born and came of age after the Civil War that I actually think is terrifying. Um, and we have not even begun unpacking things. So yes, I'm definitely saying we are, uh, in a way we were unable if you ask me, for me, the promise of 2005 was to say, okay, we no longer have external excuses. We're going to finally be able to start tackling our longstanding issues. You know, to me... And that promise to, was, not, was not fulfilled. I, so before getting to the other issue, I, what you just said right now, I always associate these things with 2005. Less the, uh, less the politics, more the accountability. That there was a demand for a... Uh, a normal state that doesn't abuse its citizens. And I think it's almost a bare minimum expectation for decency and, and good governance. So I always think of that as the, as the spirit behind 2005, the events leading up to 2005. Uh, less to do with what happened after, more to do with, with these issues. The second point I, I wanted to get at was, um, you, you mentioned these, the strength of this system that Lebanon inherited and it's persistent from its independence, pre-independence until today. Uh, and you say it's doomed. I mean, that sounds, that's funny, it sounds quite hopeful, <laughs> even though the wording is not uh, optimistic, but uh, why would you, what, what makes you certain it's doomed? Because it seems to survive not just 15 years of fighting, it survived three decades of indirect rule from Syria, survived many other types of incursions, it survived Israeli invasions, and so on. So why is this system doomed, in your, in your opinion? Yeah. So by the way, I also said I don't know the expiry date, but uh, yeah. for me, it's doomed. Um, and by the way, I, I think of it as the system that came of age. Um, this is really the sort of post-Taif uh, equilibrium uh, the, that we haven't managed to, which has oh, adapted sorry. itself. It has adapted, it, it basically it's, you're referring it's, to post-Taif. No, not, but not for the... me, even post-Taif is, is, a, is, a, is a different version of what existed before. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it, yes, it's a sectarian system. But in its current, I don't, I think we have to be also a bit precise. The sectarian system that exists in Lebanon after the Civil War is different than the sectarian system from before the Civil War. Even if in its, in its uh Codes, even if in its use of violence, even so, uh, you know, pre-75, you know, I didn't exist at the time, but it was a sectarian <laughs> system, I would have uh, probably opposed it, but I think the, the, you know, the problems were a bit different and the politics were a bit different at the time, and, and there was different space. I think what we are today, the system that I'm talking about today, is, is let's not kid ourselves, it's the system of the warlords. Uh -huh. And every time you get close to the system, it is the language of the warlords that comes back to the surface. So it's, it, it's preservation of the status quo with how the civil war ended. Exactly, and it's the preservation of the... Inter I mean, everything, everything in Lebanon today, from yeah. the economy, from the key decisions, are basically concentrated in the hands of six or seven people. Okay? And they are all 
they are all somehow uh, a byproduct of the uh, civil war, including the Hariri dynasty. So he was not a warlord, but he was a key uh, figure and sort of a key figure of sort of the Ta'if and of, of the way the war ended. And he was, you know, if you go back to the archives of Fil Hariri and his plans for reconstructing Beirut even from the early 80s and so forth. What is interesting is when you look at today's parliament, when you look at today's, uh, you know, recognized politicians, there isn't a single figure that is not directly from the civil war or that is not the son of, because unfortunately it's mostly sons of, not daughters of, or widow of uh, someone from that era. And that system, and I have to recognize, one has to sort of recognize the system you're up against, has been incredibly uh, adaptable. They have managed to, I actually use the word corrupt, and integrate a new generation of talented Lebanese through uh, various uh, forms. But why do I think it's doomed despite, you know, they just won the last elections? Because I think, the, the, frankly, they're, um, they're doomed because they no longer have an economic formula to rule the country. Their system is based on uh, nepotism and, in a way, extracting resources between the fact that regional sponsors have become bored with Lebanon and they have other regional priorities, so they cannot rely yeah. on big checks, be it you know, Iran to Hezbollah or Saudi to Hariri or, you know, uh, I think the last thing that kept the system going was basically mostly Western aid uh, in relation to the Syrian refugee crisis. And people don't talk about the numbers, but these were very important to the economy. But even those numbers are actually have decreased and we can see it now, the sort of economic crisis. And even now, I mean, what, what is actually shocking, the system, you know, the system is about to collapse. And it's the, the ship is sailing with everyone on board, all of them. And even now, in their most dire moment, they're unable to sort of really uh, kind of even save their skins, forget about saving us all, you know, save their skin, they're unable to do it. They're still trying to exploit every single thing. And for me, th that inability, they can no longer imagine Lebanon's future. The problem is, you know, there hasn't been yet an alternative, so that, that, that's the big thing going for them, and they can still play the fear politics, they can scare Lebanese of each other, uh, and every time Lebanese demand things, they can scare them. So, I, you know, I'm not optimistic in the short term, but I am convinced, I'm convinced that they are failing. Uh, it's just a question of how long will it take, and what I'm worried about is the price that, uh, the most vulnerable Lebanese are going to pay, those who are unable to, to leave. Because I, I, uh, I think this is, this is the, the, for me, the, you know, we, we're in a, uh, it's a, it's, it's a critical moment for the country. I think people don't realize because of this sort of myth of the phoenix always sort of coming back. But when you actually look at Lebanon objectively, um, you know, I, uh, I'm, I'm worried that the, building blocks, the basic social contract isn't there anymore. Uh, I think it has to be replaced. So it's, it's, a, just, it's a ticking time bomb in the sense that because the country is broke, and that is now understood, that used to just be a, uh, a nightmare scenario, now it's well understood that there's no money, that the financial strain on the country will force not just the political class, but average person to demand something else? Is that, so in other words, it, it'll take the country to really break itself, to re, to. Yeah, 
regain something uh, down the road. I hope, I, hope, I hope it doesn't have to break itself. Yeah. That's my big hope. Yeah. Um, Because this country, even though it is not in its prime shape, it has survived. And when I say it survived, I mean the system that it inherited. This not just, I think it's the people, it's the resiliency of the people. And I, yeah. you know, I, I have a lot of, I'm always in, in awe of that. Yeah. Uh, I'm also, I've become self-conscious of, of you know, uh, the sort of Lebanese self-promotion of their resiliency because sometimes that resiliency has become an excuse for not changing structural yes. things. Yes, so it's, it's been a double-edged sword. Yeah. But there's no doubt, you know, there's no doubt, uh, you know, and the Lebanese are not, I guess, This is the season where people like to talk about genes, and I don't buy that. There's nothing in the Lebanese genes that makes them more resilient. You know, uh, there are a lot of resilient communities yeah. uh, throughout the world. Sure, uh, it's something that uh, you know the adaptability has also been a, uh, a you know an evolutionary, not a genetic, an evolutionary reaction to the constant crisis. Yes, and also uh, the the idea that that we were taught at school about the Uh, you know, uh, if you don't have a job in Lebanon, you go work in the Gulf. And if there's no work in the Gulf, you go work in Africa. And if there's no work in Africa, you go somewhere else. And that, that is now accepted. This is something that the parents transmit to their children. Uh, you know, there, it's, it's a, you know this, these are the secrets of resiliency. And there's yeah. a lot to admire in that. Yeah. And, and I actually think, uh, I, I, I don't imagine change You know, I no longer think that change in Lebanon is going to happen like, you know, one armed you know, revolution and then something else happens. No, but I think what we, what ISIS, you know, if, I mean, no one should be predicting things in the Middle East, let alone Lebanon. It's impossible. But those are wise I, words. I, I think as, from, I'll, I'll, I, you know, having, having said, just said that, when, yeah. I, when I think about Lebanon and, 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 and the inability of the state to basically, you know, what is it now, 29 years after the war, Yeah. Uh, at the end of the war, still unable to provide electricity, still unable to provide water. We have now passed twice as long as the war itself. Exactly, and, and, and in a way, yeah. we are uh, the the destruction of Lebanon in the supposedly post-war peaceful economy. I would actually argue has probably been more destructive to Lebanon and to Lebanon's environment than the 15-year horrible uh, war. Uh, this, you know, and I, but I think. You know, when I, I go back to this term, uh, you know, convergence of struggles. Um, in Lebanon, there are so many struggles today. The problem is they're all divided. Yeah. Um, and it's only if these struggles come a bit more together mm -hmm. can we start imagining what an alternative would look like. Yeah. I, I don't have you, the answer. Though. No, but that's, that is a subject definitely we need to tackle because I think that exposes two things. The uniqueness of Lebanon and also that it's not special in very important ways. We're, we'll jump into that. Uh, I want to get a sense about you because you are a fearless person in times of fear. I mean, you are part of Human Rights Watch and you're working in the field, you're building up your career at a time of people were being killed for expressing their views. I mean, you, you were visible And I want to just sort of get back to your own story a bit and what brought you into this world. You know, I come from a mixed marriage, a Muslim-Christian marriage during the Civil War. 
grew up in a country, uh, I grew up in Lebanon during the war. Uh, you so were in I lived, Beirut. Oh, yeah, yeah, I was born in 77, lived, lived throughout the war in Beirut, and then after the Israeli invasion, you know, left to outside Beirut because it was quieter, yeah. but uh, very much have a... Where, where, which part of Beirut were you, did you grow up in? Where? Well, I, I grew up in Ras Beirut up okay. until the Israeli invasion. I see. So Ras Beirut, yeah. uh, and I mean, I'm guessing your earliest memories are from... Uh, Hamra area, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. I mean, very much, you know, the, uh, uh, I don't know if I have, if it's a true memory or whether it's a reconstituted memory based on family photos, you know, there's uh -huh. photos of, you're not you know, sure if they're, yeah, exactly, actual. taking me to like, the playground at AUB when yes. I was a very young kid, you know, uh, so I, you know, but I'm part of that imagined community, that Ras Beirut imagined community yes. uh, uh, at the beginning and then, and then, you know, moved to, um, I just want to interrupt you on one thing. Um, a lot of people I've met when I started doing these uh, these episodes have a fondness of Ras Beirut for many reasons, and that's one of them. That it's uh, that there's a uh, an anomaly where people, the diversity there is so unique, and everyone's on the same playing field. So the expectations are are almost uh, they're accelerated. Mm -hmm. That this is the norm, or this should be the norm. But anyway, sorry, I interrupted you. No, there. I think yeah. you're, and but. It, you know the the even in times of war you're talking about Ras Beirut you're in talking about Hamra and definitely. civil war it's again not, uh, I, yeah. and and i would say i i without falling into the folklore of it yeah. as well because I, but i think it is true and i also think beirut i always think of beirut as sort of the last levantine city this coexistent and i actually yeah. like the word levantine mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think you used to find it, uh, my grandparents lived in Alexandria for a while in Cairo. It existed at a certain amount, you yes. know. There were some cities in Turkey as well. There was this, there was a sense of coexistence. And you know, after we left West Beirut with the Israeli invasion, uh, my grandmother lived in Ashrafi and we lived in Ashrafi for a while, okay. And, uh, so you grew up on both sides I of the I grew up on both sides, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was in, I lived in Mamchayil before Mamchayil was hip at the time. Oh, wow. And where the, there's that big <laughs> Bernard Khoury building now, there used to be a, a vegetable market. Um, you, I remember my grandmother used to buy her vegetable from a Shia uh, vegetable seller. In Mamchayil. In Mamchayil. And this was the 80s. Yes. This was yes. the time people were being killed al uh, Hawiyya yeah. on yeah. their identity paper. So I think that coexistence and that model uh, made its way in different forms throughout the Civil War. Again, I, not to, and I, and I always say when and if we actually start rewriting the history of Lebanon during the Civil War. What I am interested in, and maybe what a new Lebanon can be built upon, are these memories yeah. of the Shia seller in Ashrafiyeh in the middle of the war, of the unlikely friendships, of the mixed couples that continue to marry even throughout the war. Yes. You know, yes. these examples existed. Were they dominant? Were they dominant discourse? No, but I think these were the ordinary forms of resistance that, for which maybe we as Lebanese today can, can begin to build on a better uh, heritage than the one that we are building on right now, which for me is the heritage of the warlords. But to go back, I mean, I think, you know, it's, you know, my parents were activists. Okay. Uh, so I grew up in that so environment. pre-Civil War or during the war? During, I mean, I think they, you know, uh, they were at the UN. Uh, I started my career actually as a corporate lawyer in New York. Oh, there we go. Now that uh, you just you know, killed the whole uh, uh, no, romantic it's not, story. It's not a romance. I mean, in a way, again, there's no romance. <laughs> I knew I didn't want to, uh, I mean, 
you know, it was sort of an opportunity. And I remember, I always say the, the experience of being a corporate lawyer in New York was very good because it, it demystified financial rewards and money for me from a very early age. <laughs> uh, it, it sort of gave me a, gave me a vaccine uh, against it. And interestingly, you know, I actually loved my life in New York. But I had, left, I had left my corporate job to join the UN for investigation on the oil for food in Iraq. And I was actually um, in, um, in Amman waiting for a flight to Baghdad in 2005 to conduct an investigation. It was actually a military flight I was taking. There was no yes, uh, yes. commercial flights at the time. Uh, it was sort of at the peak of the forms of violence. And, um, and while I was waiting there, uh, Habibi was assassinated. I actually remember exactly... Uh, and you know, like everyone was worried about the family because uh, yeah. and friends, and everyone was okay. And then I went to Iraq for basically a month for work, and I was uh, there. Um, you know, my job actually had to interview uh, what the for the UN kind of high level Iraqi officials who were in key parts, and whether they had corrupted the UN or not. And from there, I was sort of following from afar. The beginning is of the protest movement. So just, you, you were between Ras Beirut and then Ashrafi and Maram Khair. The civil war ends, and that's when you moved to New York? No, I moved to, first to Canada, not at the end of the civil war, but when I finish uh, my back, when I okay. finish my uh, So the civil war years were there in your mind. It's not, I mean, you, were, you remember it clearly. I remember it clearly, yeah. but you know, like, I think if you talk to a lot of people from our generation, the, the memory of the war did not... Um, fully, you know, I, don't, I wasn't traumatized by the war. Yes. Did, it, did it affect me? Of course. And maybe I would add something, you know, on, uh, uh, you know, my father is Muslim. And then, you know, after 82, I was mostly living in Christian parts of Lebanon. Mm-hmm. And I was often the token, you know, at least on the Hawiye, a token uh, Muslim in, the, uh, in my class, yes, you know, because yes. things had been divided. So, yeah. uh, you know, I, maybe this explains, well, you know, my I've always had that feeling of being kind of, you know, belonging, but also slightly outside the group, observing the group. Because I don't fit, yes. I don't fit clearly in, in the mold, you know? And, and, and uh, does this, you know, I mean, maybe with, you know, with the years, does this explain a bit my interest in certain issues? Uh, you know, uh, I, you know, even though, you know, my last name is a Sunni family from Beirut, but I'm not really, you know, kind of your, your, your Sunni from Beirut. My you're, mother is you're, Christian, you're, but on the other hand... You're an East Beiruti and a West Beiruti. I'm an East Beiruti and yeah. a West Beiruti. And, and, and in a way, I, at, at one point, we moved to the Metan with weekends in East Beirut during the war. So it's, a, it's, a, um, it's not that unique. And I don't like... I mean, and when I think about my friendships today, I have so many, you know, with my Lebanese friends, so many of us don't fit in one square, actually. What I say, and... and it's actually very interesting, and, and there is maybe power in the numbers that we're made to feel that somehow, well, you're not, you know, you're not exactly this, you're not exactly that. But I, I'm starting to think that large numbers, you know, significant parts of Lebanese are of, of, are of mixed identity, have mixed belongings. And this is what you mean by Levantine city. Yeah. That it's, not, it's not necessarily a cross-religious product. Not, actually, that might be secondary. It's more, it's more everything else. And so it's, you're it's, ex- a, exposed it, it's a way of living. It's a way of, of, of how you manage diversity yes. and how we can have overlapping identities. Yeah. And, and I hate, I hate it when the current crop of leaders try to peel that away. You know? And it's actually been amazing 
that what I find, what I still love about Beirut is that there are still these layers of, uh, you know, diversity and tolerance across all communities. And you can find them, you know, in different places that are people are negotiating on a day-to-day basis. But yeah, I mean, look, and then, then I came of age, again, like a lot of people in my generation, uh, I, I leave Iraq, you know, it's still 2005, there are protests going on. I remember thinking, okay, I have a few days off, I want to go see what these protests, so I fly to Beirut, I attend to the protests. Oh, so you, you uh, managed to come back before... So I didn't move it, I was still, my apartment was still in New York, but yes. I had, you know, uh, yes. uh, one can thank the UN system for their rest and recreation after, you know, you do a month in Iraq, <laughs> you're allowed for a few days to... R and R, as and they you, say. So this is March of two thousand five. March, April. March, you know, April, yeah. uh, so you're you're watching. I went. Change. Yeah, yeah. I participated. Yes, I participated, yeah. and I remember the energy. Yes. And and you know, I moved back to New York at the time, and I had finished my consultancy with the UN, and it was either going back to my old job at uh, as a corporate lawyer in New York and sort of my comfortable life in Manhattan, uh, or doing something else. And I saw at the time. Human Rights Watch was recruiting for a researcher for Lebanon and Syria. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they wanted someone to actually be based in Beirut and to set up their office there. You know, and I applied and as they say, kind of it was different. Interestingly, I landed in Beirut, you know, I mean I went back to Beirut to settle there in June of 2006. And you know, I wanted to work. I mean, I was I wanted to work on migrant domestic workers. I wanted to work on you know, freedom of expression issues. And two weeks after I move in, it's the war. Um, And I ended up plunging and spent the next year basically uh, documenting uh, war crimes committed by the Israeli forces, use of cluster munitions. And, you know, I and since that day, there hasn't been a dull moment. You know, I. uh, First week of July 2006, I was living I had started a, a master's degree in the States, and uh, I was supposed to go to Beirut, I think, for a week or 10 days. And yeah, I got the same, uh, ended up in Beirut, July, during the war. I ended up uh, working at Zico House with a group called Samidun. Of course, I remember them, yes. And yes. They were, I mean, I did not know that they were, I did not care for the politics per se I did not even I wasn't even aware of their <laughs> that these were far left uh, advocates it wasn't even on my mind at the time I just saw a sign saying if volunteering come join Zico House go join Samidun and uh, I ended up with Oxfam for a month distributing hygiene kits to the schools and this is I mean we had over a million uh, displaced. internally displaced mm-hmm. yeah and I remember running into many people that almost, you could sense it, that this was a, it was a terrible, terrible month to be in Beirut, to be in Lebanon. But you could also sense that there was a real passion to make sure that this does not turn into something worse. And the openness, the willingness to take in a million displaced from the south into Beirut without even thinking about it, it did not matter if their allegiance was with Hezbollah or not. That's, and it's only 13 years ago. It's remarkable that today, 2019, put Lebanon in the same situation, I think that would be a tinderbox for a civil war. And I, I mean, I'm yeah, sorry, yeah. maybe too pessimistic. No, but it's not. But I think what's interesting, I want to I be a bit more 
optimistic. You mentioned Samidun because I actually I remember meeting them. They were in the Sanaya Garden. And yeah, Zico, yeah, I remember walking into Zico House. Sure. We may have crossed paths there at the time. This you know, the, I was the, working the, on the documenting. In the back and yeah. we all get, every day you'd meet and but join. For me, yeah. Samidun, like, you know, and again, now sort of in hindsight, as we sort of look back, this form of hor- horizontal, non hierarchical movements. Yes, yeah. Um, which we saw a lot of in the Arab world after 2011, we continue to see of. Uh, these were the early signs that something is different. There are new forms of social mobilization, and, yeah. and, and uh, I'm actually fascinated uh, by these movements. And this was a natural, they, yeah, yeah, grassroots, ground-up movement. There was no politics involved. But, well, well there, there was politics, no, but there are not politics as 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 we traditionally understand. So it wasn't the Communist Party of Lebanon yeah, exactly. delegating this group. They may yeah. have been communists or anarchists, whatever you want to call yeah. them, left-wing advocates. But it wasn't a Zaim telling them, go and work at Zico House. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 it, and they were coordinated and they were effective. Yes. And, you know, uh, and it pulled in if, lots you of go, if you go and look at some of the neighborhood uh, groups that have been organizing today in Khartoum and Sudan, you'd actually find the same modes of yes. operation. And I found the same modes of operation in the Tansikiyat uh, that we saw in Syria, uh, that we, uh, you know, I mean, these... In a way, uh, if you ask me the way forward, uh, I'm very intrigued by these new movements that are not so new now. They've been around for more than a decade. Uh, they obviously are, you know, have in some ways achieved success, but have also been difficult to carry forward uh, because they don't, or, you know, they're very good at organizing when there's crisis. They're not as good at organizing when there are elections. They're not as good at organizing and competing against, you know, inherent. And actually, one of the things with my new job now at the Arab Reform Initiative is, is what we're trying to do is to better understand these movements, mm. better uh, try to understand what is working, what is not working, and without sort of imposing or, or changing them, but just sort of say, okay, are there lessons to be learned here? You know, what works, what doesn't work? Do you see the last decade throughout the region, not Lebanon per se, as Lebanon being the springboard? The I don't know if Lebanon, no, I don't, I don't like the, Lebanon. Lebanon is definitely part of the wave, mm-hmm. you know. So I wouldn't necessarily, Lebanon is the springboard, but Lebanon had, I think what we saw yeah. uh, in Lebanon in 2005 had in it a lot of the elements that we saw in other places mm-hmm. afterwards. Now, was Lebanon the springboard, you know, in the sense that I don't know because I, I, you know, I have never heard an Egyptian activist tell me, Reference Lebanon. Uh, I learned this from watching what people were doing in Lebanon, yeah. uh, you know, but I think what is, from, so I wouldn't necessarily say it, I don't see the causation link as much as say, there are things that are happening. I mean, and look, it's, it's partly the shared demographics. Most Arab countries are very young countries, yes, you know. Yes. Uh, the frustration with the lack of public services, the frustration of the political system. But when, what, what I see now, and more clearly as well, is that Lebanon is not sui generis. Lebanon is not so exceptional. It has its uniqueness, like yeah. a lot of other countries have their own particularities. But when you look at some of the dynamics that exist in Lebanon, that existed in Lebanon in 2005, that you see in the mobilization movement in 2006 with a group like Samidun, I see echoes of what I'm seeing in other parts of the uh, Arab world. But I, I actually think the events of 2006 in the middle of the war are as important as the protests of 2005, because that is genuine that is genuine coexistence right there. You can take a huge part of Lebanon, push it into Beirut, and I don't think for a moment anyone considered an alternative. 
there was no conversation of these people cannot come in. We are not going to let them stay. So it's almost like uh, that, that rhetoric was not there. And I'm just going to bring it up again that it's, it's that, that's what I mean by uh, retrograde, that you can't, it's hard for me to imagine a similar situation today. How, and this is speculation, yeah. but can, do you get the feeling that that level of whatever it is, this sort of bond that we're, we're in this together, do you think it's there right now in 2019? Look, it's hard. It's hard. I, the honest answer is it's, uh, you know, on the surface, the country seems more divided. On the other hand, you never know how people will react uh, if there's a, you know, major external threat, like another major Israeli bombing campaign. Um, you just don't know um, because you don't need to look back. I mean, you know, we're talking about 2006. In 2008, we had a mini civil war. That's true. Yeah. Uh, and I was on the streets documenting. I actually, you know, got held up by gunmen for a few hours. Were you in, in, the, in the shoof? In the shoof. In the shoof, I got held up by gunmen when I was investigating the death of some people. We, again, got very close to, uh, to a civil war. And the codes of the civil war, the language of the civil war, you know, I'm, I'm even going to tell you a story that actually was funny. The gunmen that stopped me, and I was at the time in the car I had with me, uh, the New York Times uh, journalist, uh, Bobby Worth, they were still wearing their fatigues from the Civil War, except they had gained around 15 kilos since then. <laughs> so the T-shirt wasn't fitting. You know, yeah. it was you know it was scary and farcical at the same time. They, you know, they it was back their Civil War. Yeah, yeah, they dressed up and they, they were you know, and you could see the T-shirt you know was covering half the midriff sort of thing. <laughs> uh, it was hard to be to feel. You know, it was. But all of this to say, I mean, this is part of the. Uh, current schizophrenic order in Lebanon, which is, uh, on the one hand, you have this, um, I mean, in a way, the civil war has never fully ended in the sense we haven't fully turned the page, we haven't written the history. Uh, the clearest open wound is obviously the issue of the disappeared from the civil war, but not just. Uh, I mean, this is a country where there isn't a single, a single memorial really for the civil war kind of country, you know, there isn't a single memorial for the victims of the civil war. There, there's, there's only been a, I wouldn't even say a reconciliation, there was a deal, there was a transactional deal that was cut between the uh, militia elites with a big fat Saudi check and reconstruction money, uh, you know. Um, so th this is on the one hand. You're talking about Ta'if. I'm talking about Ta'if, exactly, and I'm talking about the sort of post-war deal. It's, it's a transactional uh, business model, huh? uh, and in parallel, and this, maybe it's worth even saying it that if you commit a crime after the civil war ended, you're then responsible for all the crimes you committed. That's yeah. what you're referring to. Yeah, but you know, look, I actually go even more. For me, as it become became clear, even the am you know Lebanon, there was an amnesty that was signed after the uh, you know as part of the the, the end of the civil war. Uh, with actually a bunch of exceptions. Now, usually, you know, and I'm very much against this culture of impunity. I'm definitely hope to see the day where this amnesty is removed, huh? just to be very clear. But the logic of amnesties is usually you're supposed to say, okay, what happened before, because we, we can't prosecute everyone, 
But looking forward, we're supposed to go back to a rule of law. Okay. I would, I mean, I looked at that. There is not a single political crime in Lebanon committed after Taif, so after the amnesty, not a single political crime for which anyone has been prosecuted and held accountable. Not a single political assassination. Nothing. So actually, in a way, the amnesty is ongoing. They have given themselves an amnesty to life. I, I remember in 2008, you know, we're, we're jumping a bit in time, but I remember in 2008, you know, just people maybe don't remember, in May 2008, fighting erupted. It was, you know, it was short, but actually civilians were killed. Huh? Civilians yeah. were caught in the crossfire sure. uh, in Beirut. You had checkpoints uh, springing up. Exactly. People, yeah. people were actually killed. People yeah. were killed and in, 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 uh, people were arrested, beaten up, and so forth. Uh, uh, media stations were closed down. And right. burned. There is no amnesty for what happened during that period. Okay? Technically, technically uh, people were murdered by gunmen. I mean, actually, the way the law would look at this and I actually met many of the families of the victims, because this was my job at the time of Human Rights Watch. If you had been, if you were killed by a gunman in the streets of Ras al-Nabar, or Beirut anywhere, or the Shuf, or wherever, uh, the way the law would look at this is someone committed murder, and they should be prosecuted for murder. Now, deliberate, uh, you know, unintentional depends on the circumstances. We're talking about the most basic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, this was this, this is, is not, the basic. Yeah. I mean, this is the, this is a uh, and families at the beginning were very keen on justice, and then their own leaders told them, "Let it go." Okay, and to this day, okay, I not a single person, to my knowledge, was prosecuted for killing civilians. Okay, nothing. Um, I mean, you know, if we talk about all the political assassinations that happened. There's no amnesty that applies to them. No one's been investigated. So this is what I mean by we never, the, so even the amnesty in Lebanon, they passed an amnesty, but they didn't even respect the logic of their own amnesty. And we are still going with it. This is the problem. People are still going with it. And it is just, for so me, this is intolerable. You know, I've never heard it this way, that you're drawing the line between 1989, Ta'if, and the string of assassinations and brief uh, war in 2008. I've never really heard it described that way. So you're, in a way, it's a structural thing that Ta'if allows for these events to take place. And it allows it because the, the political establishment that inherited Lebanon after the Civil War is more willing to let violence slide than sort of have retribution or payback. Because what you're saying is really let it go, meaning the other side, we're not going to bother them right now. Leave them alone. It doesn't matter if you, if you, got, if you have... If your son was killed or your father yeah. or your wife. Ta'if yeah. ta is more important than you. In I'm actually going to go even further. Okay. It's not that the system says let it go. They live off that system because each side has committed violence. So all parties in Lebanon are willing to use that logic in a way, and it's a logic because they know they can use it with impunity because no one holds them accountable to it. Um, and yeah, and they just enforce it. What they tell their followers is 
forget about it. You know, we will compensate you. We'll give you something symbolically, you know, and, and, and sort of forget about it. And I think this is the, um, this is the tragedy. And this is what I mean that the uh, legacy, and this is where I think we have failed so far. Because this is As the struggle activists. of human rights. You're, you're there to yeah. document and you're being taken away. You, well, you're, 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 you're stuck documenting yeah. and you're unable to get to accountability. Right. This is, if you ask me, the biggest failure, my biggest frustration after 10 years of human rights activism in Lebanon is lack of accountability. Those 10 years that I spent heading the Human Rights Watch office in, in Lebanon was sort of peering into the abyss. You know, you remove a layer and you discover there's another layer. And you remove a layer like a peeling an onion, you know, and you get, and there's another layer, and there's another layer. And you discover that the closer you get, the closer you get to asking for accountability, there are always excuses. There are always excuses. They will all, and, and, and those excuses, you know, initially you hear them for, well, um, for political murders, political assassinations. It's very hard because well, how can we justify that we're having justice for this case? Meanwhile, you know, there hasn't been justice for pick your political leader killed in the civil war. And then suddenly you ask, okay, what about justice for these people who are tortured? Well, how can we hold this uh, police officer accountable because we haven't held someone, a bigger fish, accountable, so we cannot do this, and so forth and so forth. And I, I actually think the, the biggest weakness and the biggest challenge in Lebanon is this question of accountability. And frankly, the, the problem is, I think we are not, even as a society, I, ha I think this is where uh, there is still reluctance to fully demand accountability, because accountability is a very powerful tool. Once you really pursue it, you know, if you really go after it, it means the whole edifice will have to fall down. Because frankly, we are ruled by a bunch of war criminals objective war criminals. I mean, if there was actually a, a court one day, more, you know, more than half uh, those in power today in Lebanon have actually committed war crimes or have ordered them. Um, so, you know, it, it's like, uh, it, and I think somewhere in the subconscious of people, they know that, so they don't want to go there. Uh, and but it, can I ask you then, in that case, the few that are not, and they are, they yeah. are they're available, and their names are familiar, they're, they may be close to war criminals, mm -hmm. they may have allegiance to, but they are themselves not a product of the civil war per se. Um, do you find any support coming from them, whether directly or indirectly? No. No. So even those that, they'd be friendlier to something like this, which is accountability, even they are shackled. Well, because I actually have not found them to be friendly for accountability, because they, and I, again, I'm not talking about, I mean, what, you know, for me, because it took me a while to figure that out, but I think yeah. I think of account the la impunity in Lebanon and the lack of accountability is a bit like a cancer that has uh, metastasized in the uh, in all the institutions. Mm -hmm. Okay, so people are unable to even imagine accountability. They're unable to actually they're unable to fire a police officer who tortures people, yeah. even if actually. I mean, I've had that told to me, you know, by high-ranking members of the ISF. Yes, we agree, this police officer is corrupt and he has tortured people. They cannot touch that person because they're not accountable, to, that person is not accountable to their superior, they're accountable to the Zaim, the sectarian Zaim, yeah. who got them appointed. 
And in the few cases where we saw someone being removed, you know, and it doesn't have to be for human rights, for corruption, then the system, the system, quote unquote, uh, the, the za'im who that person belongs to, then they will punish another person in the public uh, administration who, you know, as sort of tit for tat. Yeah. Uh, so the power sharing infrastructure is at its core two things. It allows someone like you to live on both sides of Beirut during times of crisis. And you're able to see these nice examples of pluralism and diversity going back to your childhood and I'm sure even today. Uh, and at the same time, it, it's the cancer of Lebanon, which is you cannot ha have one community uh, cleaning up its own mess for many reasons. One of them is, if you expect that, you're going to have to get everyone to clean up their own backyard, their own mess, and that will never happen. And that is the structure of Ta'if, that we don't need to be accountable. But I'm, I'm trying to like get the yes. full picture here. Yes, I, yeah. I mean, it's, it's lack of accountability. And it's, and it's a, lack it's of a, accountability within each community. Of course, yeah, and because, because each community today is... Um, in a way, if I pick on it's you, divided. I mean, it's it's actually organized yeah. in similar manners. Now the dynamics could be a bit different and so forth, but the 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 the, the power structures are very very similar. And yes. in a way, the power that these feudal lords have. I mean, really, it's the best way to understand Lebanon. Forget about sectarianism. It's a feudal system. Yeah. Okay. You want to access the system, you have to go through one of the feudal lords. Okay, if you don't, if you, I mean, yeah. then you have a small Even with human rights. Well, not, not, actually, you know, I was very lucky because I, you know, I worked for an international organization. I was independent. Mm. You know, mm. I didn't have to actually, you know, yeah. sort of the, we didn't need them. Yes. We didn't need them. We were yeah. outside of that. And, and you know, and uh, it was a privilege in a way. Yeah. Um, but the, 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 uh, and no, there are activists who are trying to, to break this. But when it, what I mean is, you, you realize, and the system is, it used to be, you know, back in the 90s, you know, if you wanted to maybe access a public service, like access to a hospital for, your, you know, your elderly parent, if you don't have the means to go to a private hospital, you had to go through a uh, zayn. You had to go through your feudal yeah. lord. Yeah. Um, now, the, as actually, as the years have progressed, and as the political economy of Lebanon has changed, not only do you need to go through your zayn to access public services, Today, you need to go through your za'im to actually get hired by a private company. Yeah. If you actually yeah, look at the true. statistics on hiring uh, employees in the private sector around elections in Lebanon, look at that. It's fascinating. <laughs> fascinating. Hiring goes up dramatically a few months before the elections. But this is not just hiring in the public sector. It's in the private sector. Because today, and you know, we know these companies, you know, these big companies. They're private sector companies, yeah. but in a way they exist because of their privileged ties to this leader or that leader. Not all of them, but a good chunk of the Lebanese economy. And as we go forward, it's actually becoming bigger and bigger. So the power of the feudal lords has now extended. They are, they are the entry point now to being hired into the private sector. I mean, this is this is so this they are, is they are the system. They are they have. Become, I mean, this is what I mean by it's yeah. a cancer that has metastasized. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a feudal system with sectarian overtones. But I'm convinced that if you want to understand the system at its basics today, it's a feudal system, and it actually has affected all communities, all communities without. And it's actually been very interesting to see um, the evolution of the Aunus movement. They have feudalized themselves 
you know, and it's interesting because it was the movement that was mostly in the diaspora, and you know, so when it, it hadn't been, you know, it was, it was, it was a lot of it was in, in yeah. France and other yeah. places, and then actually when I mean, just from a political scientist, not a human rights act, from a political scientist approach, look at the metamorphosis of the Aounis movement in <laughs> such a short amount of time, yeah. and how it has feudalized itself, both in terms of the key po positions are now being held by the family, but also how uh, basically it has just become a, a new form of a Christian feudal uh, lordship, even though you know, socioeconomically, it had the basis to be something else. So I, I, this is for me the, how the, again, for me, it's another example of, of, the, of, the, of the cancer that is, that is eating. I wish, I wish, I wish I knew, I wish I knew how we get out of there. You're, you're touching on something here. The, the, what could have been an independent movement because of the way Lebanon works, even that type of movement where its members were more independently minded got sucked into the yeah. Lebanese framework. Yeah. yeah. And you're now, I mean, I, I'm getting this from you that you do have on occasion grassroots movements, whether it's Samidun or something much different, which is the Aounist uh, movement, that there's just no breathing space for, for, uh, for anything dramatically different. I think what is interesting, you know, if you look at Samidun, if, if you look at uh, other forms of horizontal movements that have emerged, uh, the movements that emerged around the garbage crisis, you know, uh, uh, and these things. So these movements, the system has succeeded so far. I mean, Samidun was, you know, uh, was not against an internal entity at the end, but, but in its forms of organization, the horizontality, the self-starting is actually very similar to what we saw in some of the other movements later on. What's actually interesting is these movements so far are trying to knock at the gates of power, are trying to imagine a different forms of politics. They're not fully succeeding so far. Yeah. Uh, but I think with each round, they're, they're learning something. And I think this is going to be the most uh, interesting um, aspect is, uh, can you imagine different forms, you know, can these forms of mobilization uh, ultimately uh, kind of threaten and undermine the current system, which I think in the last parliamentary elections we saw, uh, while it may be very much weakened, and I am remain convinced that it's unable to actually uh, provide uh, any future for Lebanon, is still very much able to mobilize its voters. So, but I'm getting, I'm getting into the, I know they're fundamentally different, and Aoun in Paris versus a a uh, a volunteer in Hamra during 2006. Well, because also, also not just Aoun, Aoun is also a product of the Lebanese civil war, and we have to keep that in sure, mind. That is true. He's a general, and he. That's true. You're absolutely right. But I'm talking about uh, somebody who may think independently, whether it's a grassroots movement or whether it's a political, uh, whether it's an exile uh, group, that they're not able to go beyond that. And this is what I was curious about earlier, the, the uniqueness of Lebanon, because let's go now to the Arab Reform Initiative. You're looking at the wider region, and from an amateur like myself who doesn't know too much about it, in a country like Tunisia, it doesn't have 
this type of internal sort of uh, differences. You have a, a dictator who's thrown out. You have the, for lack of a better word, the birth pangs of democracy. And a decade later, Tunisia is, appears to be moving in the right direction. Appears to be. Uh, and now an independent voice can express themselves fully. And someone today is more likely to be able to bring about accountability. In a case like Lebanon, even though that, in my opinion, was the momentum behind March 14, that somebody in that situation in Martyrs Square in Beirut cannot reach the same destiny because of the way Lebanon works? Uh, I would say it's a different challenge. Mm -hmm. uh, in a country like Tunisia or some of the other Arab countries, for a long time, the state had the monopoly over violence. Okay? Uh, so when you would talk about accountability, it's actually harder to talk about it while that person is in power because they, can, they dominate you. And then when they're gone, it's a bit easier. But it's not that easy. One should not undermine, underestimate the efforts that are going into it. It's true that in Lebanon, the, um, and again, I think th these are things that we're going to have to unpack as part of our post-war uh, efforts. Yeah. Uh, there is a uh, two, um, you know, I think two equations that were set up in the kind of post-war. لا غالب ولا مغلوب. No, 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 van you know, no one was vanquished and no one won. Mm -hmm. Sort of, you know, mm -hmm. and and this other idea that somehow uh, we were all killers and we were all victims. Okay, there's a sort of sense of it was messy and so forth. And yeah, the Lebanese civil war was messy, but no, we were not all killers. In each community, you had killers and you had victims. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I, you, you know, and I think we have to remember that. And this is what I mean. When we write, and when we say, well, look, you're all killer, you're, without, I don't want to become naive or just have my human rights hat on, but I think it's a very important distinction to draw because as long as we're in this logic of, well, look, ah, it was all the same, everyone did nasty things, yeah. uh, it's true that actually it's impossible to hold anyone accountable in such a situation. But you know what? There were some people who volunteered for the Red Cross when we were youngsters, and there were some people who were snipers killing, you know, mothers and children across. It's well said. And I am not, you know, I want to remember those who uh, joined the Red Cross. I want to remember uh, those people who showed forms of resistance day to day and resisted the militia, you know, the militiaization of, of, of Lebanon, you know. Uh, at the same time, uh, I also want to hold to account, and holding to account doesn't mean you put everyone in prison. Okay, it doesn't mean you can have different forms of holding to account with the years. And you is know, there, we have to hear the victim that you, that you think of. Is, is there a template that you? There uh, isn't. I mean, of course, there are plenty of precedents, and 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 uh, you know, I mean, you can either. Of course, everyone talks about the South African experience uh, of transition and reconciliation there. Yeah, I've spent some time traveling and studying the South American experience of Argentina, Chile, yes, and Uruguay. Yes. Uh, you know, I mean, um, and again, it can take different forms about who you remember. Why do we today, when in Lebanon, for instance, who do we glamorize from the civil war? The militiamen, the Zama, who, who, you know, I mean, even the last interaction, oh, Bashir Jmail was a strong man, or this guy was a strong man, or this man was a strong man. You know, okay, what about glamorizing these courageous women who, you know, used to go pick up their kids at cross points? 
or who used to queue. I mean, those are the, re I mean, you know, the, you are a, the, the values as, that you carry as a society are manifested by the way who you idolize mm -hmm. and who you remember. In Argentina, they remember the mothers and the grandmothers of the disappeared, okay? Um, in, in France, they remember uh, les résistants, those who resisted the Nazis, okay? Uh, you have to remember, they are renaming more and more streets in this city after women who were key figures, okay? This is the process we need in Lebanon, and I think this is the process that would lead us to accountability. I would say, you know, looking back, maybe my, you know, uh, I worked on accountability thinking, you know, you document the issue, you push it through the judiciary, and you get there, you know. And, and you know, this is what we tried to do in 2008. Yeah. I went to see prosecutors. Uh, I mean, these were crimes that just happened. These were not crimes that happened during the Civil War. People who were killed, there were actually camera footage in some cases. In Halba, where a bunch of gunmen entered and finished a member of the Hezb al-Qawmi, SSNP, in the hospital bed, was all captured on a video camera of the hospital. Okay? The military, I know for a fact, had a copy of that video. The murderer is, the, you know, the murder has been filmed. No one is troubled. And, and this is where I think maybe I was naive, doing my self-criticism, is for us to be able to build accountability for that murder in 2008, we have in a way to reimagine our society, tell stories differently, and stop glamorizing the murderers of the Civil War. The, this will take time. Uh, this is not easy. Uh, I'm not sure, and it's very hard to do it as you have constantly new conflicts and new layers and new tensions coming up. I'm, I'm conscious that this is a very, very hard bit, but I think we can start by uh, starting to remember our history a bit differently, uh, looking at traditions instead of, um, you know, I think one of the, one of the uh, you know, what I call as well the legacy of the civil war in Lebanon, you know, um, if someone succeeds in Lebanon, uh, people rarely ask how they succeeded. It doesn't matter if you succeeded by doing hard work or if you succeeded by cheating, uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, if someone succeeded by being corrupt, people say, hey, the shatif. he's a, uh, you know, he's a, uh, I don't know whether it's the right trans translation well, for he's, he's, he's wise. He's, he's wise or he's, he's a willy. He's, yeah. or he's, you know, this is, it's, it's, it's put forward as a, positive thing, you know? Yeah. yeah, it was a shady deal in Africa, or it was a shady deal in the Gulf countries, but, you know, he Sorted. had the guts to do it. Yeah. He had the guts to do that shady deal. Yes. Good for him, you know? Uh, and he will be treated as a monsieur, as someone respectable in Lebanese society. Look, I think this is a profound, uh, this is a society that uh, which, w w the values have been, have, in a way, have been corrupted. Now, can you draw from your parents' generation and your grandparents' generation, that structurally things were healthier for the average citizen. Because 1950s, the glory years, right? I mean, 1960s, it's largely the grandparents of the current political class. So it's the same, it's the same makeup in that sense. They're not fighting each other. There's no civil war. But there were periods of unrest. In 1958, there was a brief civil war. The 1960s were violent at times, and the early 1970s may as well have been a civil war already beginning. It, of course, you had an invasion already at the Israelis in South Lebanon. So is this something that's just, I mean, there's never been a time in Lebanon's history that was reaching what you're describing? Because it doesn't sound like it's an issue of time. 
doesn't sound like uh, in 30 years we will forget the names of these people. On the contrary, it seems like in 30 years they will be as relevant as they are today. So it's not so much time, it's the hardware of the country. I don't, you know, I, ho- I hope you're wrong. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> but no, you, I think you're, look, I think you ask, I mean, you know, you have the traditional political elites mm-hmm. that uh, kind of controlled Lebanon after independence, right? You talk about the big families, these sorts of things, right? Yeah. Uh, big families between, by the way, just between quotation marks, huh? But they, they you know, they, the, well, uh, they, they, they sort of, they, they, I mean, in a way, they were the feudal lords. Yes. Huh? I mean, the Jumblats were literally, and the Arslan were literally feudal sure, lords, sure. but even if you look at the non-feudal structures, you had sort of the, the slams were a very important family. You know, they were like, these were the, you know, these were the wujaha, the notables. In the urban setting, you may not have had le- uh, feudal lords, but you had notables. Uh, the, you, you, so it's interesting that the, you know, Lebanon only produced two generation, uh, two types of elites. There is the traditional elites that have sort of managed to stay. Mm-hmm. And then you have the, the generation of the civil war. But what's actually been interesting to look at is how that the, Generation of elites that emerged during this, you know, Nabi Hibere, yes, Aoun, yes. Uh, Hezbollah leaders, Nasrallah, and others. So these were, they are the ones who kind of emerged by the power of the gun, yes. so to speak. Those ones, to a certain extent, are becoming feudalized themselves. Right. So uh, when you think about the Aounis, uh, it's all about the son-in-law. Uh, the son-in-laws, I should say, both son-in-laws. <laughs> uh, when you think about Nabi Hibere, the big discussion in the Amal movement is the succession plan. Right. And he's reaching 80 years old you know, now. Without what's a the succession plan and, and, and who's going to be uh, in charge? So even the, you know, even the ones that have emerged that were not feudal yeah. are, are becoming feudalized and they are uh, setting the sort of laying the groundwork for, for, their, for, their, for their descendants. Uh, but to kind of, I think, you know, it, was it better before? I, I honestly don't know you know, we all hear stories. We hear stories about the golden age, about, and I know, Hamra, I know about taking the tramway to go to, sure. to watch the movies and how great it was. And I know human rights in general was not a major discussion in those years anyway. Not just, of course, the Middle East, anywhere in the and world. And of course, yeah. you had a lot of inequality. So yeah, let's not kid ourselves. Yeah. I mean, you know, the belts of poverty, there were the Palestinians who were marginalized. We also had the, the urban poverty belts, sure. uh, which were basically the Shias who were completely yeah. excluded. Uh, and they were uh, very poor. I mean, again, I think the, the uh, you know, the history of Lebanon, there's probably been, you know, what people say is there's been the one experience of sort of state building under Shahab. Yeah. Now, what I've always... years of... Yeah, what I always found fascinating about the Shahabist experience is, you know, had I been alive and a human rights activist, I probably would have been writing reports about the torture committed by the military intelligence, what they used to call the Deuxième Bureau. Yeah. Uh, but because this was, you know, I mean, let's not kid ourselves. This yeah. was a repressive system. But at the same time, one has to recognize it was the only experience in Lebanon in terms of attempts at state building. And to this day, the few institutions we have that are still standing are from, the, back, from that era. Are from that era. Yeah, and some of the few urban planning documents that are still yeah. that we still have are still from that era. It's like we have had wasted decades. Uh, since since then. Where does change start coming from in a place like Lebanon? And, you know, when you ask people, and, and, and they, it's actually very interesting, they always tell you, well, and this, I, I used to teach a course in university in Lebanon, in, uh, 
it was a class about advocacy and human rights. So you'd expect the students. I always ask them at the end, so what do you see? And, oh, we need a military man to like get the country in shape. And I was like, okay, I have failed in this. And every year I'd get the same answer. And, and you know, I think it was this, this, this sort of romantic. And I'm like, you know what? Actually, the presidents of Lebanon after the end of the civil war, with the exception of Hawaii, have all been military men. That's true. Okay? That We've had true. three military men as leaders. <laughs> you could argue Lebanon has never been as badly governed. <laughs> you know, and, but, and, and, and they each came, you know, uh, uh, you know, they each came with this sort of talk about reform. And, and I'm like, so, I, you know, I'm not buying it. Changes in Lebanon, you know, the only alternative is can these interesting grassroots movements, can there be an interest, and I don't know, I mean, the current formula also has its weaknesses, but can these grassroots movements, these attempts, you know, add up to something more, to something more than the sum of their parts? You're talking so, about a connected link, right? Connected Between, link, yeah. yeah. It, it, connectivity, and you see people like, okay, you might be, you might be starting to, we're seeing people mobilize in areas around the garbage issue. Other people are mobilizing around environmental issue. Mm -hmm. uh, some people are mobilizing against uh, the economic reforms that are being, some people are mobilizing to protect the coastal stuff. Yes. The coastal, uh, prop, you know, co access to the coast, yes. public property on the beach. And, you know, it's kind of chaotic and you're like, okay, this is not going to be able to, but could, can one dream for a second that maybe if these struggles find a way to federate themselves and maybe build forms of institutions that we have not thought about yet, mm -hmm. could they add up to something more? And, you know, in this sort of languid, hot Paris summer, I find myself dreaming of that because I find myself <laughs> like 5,000 votes is what Nadim <laughs> not to pick on Nadim Jmeyi, no, could it's be not about him. 5,000 no. or 6,000 votes, this is it? Could, could we not imagine more than, you know, if there is a really pro, uh, representational and progressive electoral law, could we not find 5,000 people in Lebanon who care about the environment, who care about access to the public beaches, who care about the disappeared, who care about the way public debt who, uh, is being misgoverned, who care about housing, that they can somehow provide an alternative? I, and, you know, uh, when I find myself dreaming, I actually find maybe, maybe the answer is there. And I don't, I don't know what it would look like exactly. Okay? But what I do know is Lebanon's reforms are not going to come through an autocratic person. It's not going to happen. It has failed every time. And I can't believe people still think about that as the alternative. Uh, I, you know... And I, so maybe, you know, to kind of close the loop, maybe that saw me do an example in, in that, you know, in a, in a daunting moment for Lebanon, it sort of was hinting at what an answer could be. Again, I don't, it's not the full answer. I don't want to be completely naive either, right? You don't govern just on that, but that this sense of, uh, you know, maybe we need to be rethinking politics in Lebanon in a, in a deeper way. And I think the, uh, the human rights movement has, you know, a lot to contribute. Uh, I sometimes hear criticism about the NGOization of the human rights movement. I think there are some valid criticisms in it. I, I take that on board. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, I think if you step back for a second and, and you look at the human rights movement, and it's various forms, huh? mm -hmm. and it's feminist form, and it's pure human rights form, and it's mm -hmm. all, all it's different. I think it has succeeded 
in starting to find a common language for some of these causes. So when I hear today uh, a very interesting movement in the Palestinian camps in Lebanon, mm. the youth mm. of the Palestinian camps are protesting yes. against discriminatory policies against them yes. in labor law. Um, you know, they are protesting, of course, as Palestinians who are marginalized, but also around their basic human rights to live Absolutely. in dignity. Yeah. Uh, and when you hear what the retired military in front of, uh, you know, in the recent protests for some of the new budgetary measures that will cut their uh, retirement, they're talking, about, they're talking about their need to live in dignity. And when you hear about people protesting on the garbage crisis, they're protesting about, they're saying, we want our children to live in healthy environments. We don't want to be basically, we don't know what we're, you know, what air our children are breathing. So maybe, you know, uh, I think this is where maybe the contribution of the human rights movement could be in, in helping imagining part of the language that can start uniting these people. Um, you know, I would just add to it, I think what we need to add is, I think the human rights movement and the human rights discourse is very important, very essential. Uh, uh, but it's also, you know, it's very good at capturing the individual and individual rights. Yes, that's you need true. to supplement that. You need yeah. to supplement that with a vision for a community. Yeah. Okay, and you know, for, a, a, and, and I think this is where the, I'm hoping some of these more recent movements can explore a bit more. You, you need to create a sense of community, and I think this is where it has failed. Samidun created an amazing sense of community in the summer of 2006. Has that community gone after? The, the protest movement uh, around the garbage crisis created an amazing sense of community. Has that survived? And, and I think for me, you know, to go back to my current job, if, if, if I have the luxury, I will have to see to, to hire people to think about these issues and maybe myself spend some time you know, digging and trying to understand. And, and maybe, uh, it's just it's a big maybe, maybe this, is, this might have provide some clues to, to where, you know, a way to think about a different future. So your current work here in Paris, Arab Reform Initiative, is focusing on this, the connections, the connectivity on a much larger scale. Yeah, so I think our, our main mission is how do, you perform, how do you promote real reforms in the region so that you can have diverse societies that are more equitable, that are more respectful of the environment. You and so are basically taking Ross Beirut and spreading it throughout the region. You're right. taking your, your childhood, which was relatively normal in, a, in an area that was completely abnormal. Your childhood, the sense of dignity that you had as a child and then an adolescent in East Beirut, you're actually you're an ind individual connection within Beirut. You are, and you're taking Ross Beirut now and you're applying it to the region, which I think is... At its core, it's what you represent to Lebanon and the region, which is people that can find common understanding on issues that are very, very apolitical. This is not about allegiance to a certain man or a certain ideology. This is about bare minimum dignity. And that's, I think, at the core of your message here, which is Lebanon is not special, but we are as deserving as anyone in the region of these things, whether it's Palestinians in Lebanon, Syrians in Lebanon, or Lebanese, or Lebanese in Lebanon, or Lebanon. it's everyone, and yeah. I, I think the look. I don't, you know, I've never thought of it. I have to think about it about the, you know, as, you know. But if Ras Beirut is a model, why not? Because the the community, you know, Ras Beirut had a lot going for it. Uh, and again, that's particularly Ras before during the war, it's not Ras particularly Beirut, yeah. before they built all these horrible buildings and have actually shut the air and the sun. 
Well, I know we're talking and, about urbanism and, here, and but, the sea, and the sea. But the 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 you know, as I say, look, I think the there is people sometimes tend to think of the you know Arab region or the Arab world today as very static. I actually think it's incredibly dynamic. Uh, there's a search and it, uh, for for answers for things and for models, and maybe you're. I mean, I do see it that the. You know, the, the challenge, as I see it, is we know that the current models have failed uh, across. I mean, you can take the sort of Ba'athist model of Iraq, uh, uh, Syria. You can take the sort of chaotic, uh, you know, feudal model of Lebanon. You can take the uh, autocratic. I mean, you can take the monarchies of the... I mean, these models, in a way, have failed at different levels, right? And I think there is a... Uh, if you talk to the... You know, when you do these opinion surveys with the youth... Uh, words, you know, they have actually emptied words of nationalism. They, they mean nothing anymore. Right? It's, they've used them so much as slogans. And, and so the idea of imagining, you know, I, I think if, if I want to be a bit slightly, you know, slightly arrogant and maybe slightly ambitious, but, yeah, you know, can we reimagine? Uh, I'm actually going to use the word politics. Can we reimagine a social contract? Because for me, uh, and, I, you know, part of what we actually are going to struggle for here at the Arab Reform Initiative, is to say, you know, mobilizing against uh, a hotel that occupies a public beach is political. This is, for me, this is political in the sense of the, this is the way you are expressing your active citizenship. And that is, to me, the true meaning of being political. And for us to succeed in getting rid of the feudal lords, we have to realize that politics is not something that the quote-unquote, big of this world, you know, talk about around cigars in dark rooms. And then the rest of us who are busy worrying about air quality for our children, access to the beaches, uh, urban planning, public transportation, oh, well, this is apolitical, you know, this is this. No, this is political. We have to recognize this is political. And if we, if we don't recognize that, we are bound to fail because they will give us this little space, Oh, yeah, you know, I call them the sort of, you know, oh, yeah, you can do, make the street look a bit prettier. Okay. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about how we're going to share the street, you know. So, in a way, uh, I would say, you know, and it's not just, but I think if we, we need to redefine politics in the region and redefine it as a sense of, if you're an active citizen, then you are a political agent. You know, and it's not reinventing the wheel. I mean, if you take, uh, I've actually been very, I've been living now in France for three months. Uh, people in my neighborhood here, and they have way less problems, way less problems than what, you know, we face in Lebanon. They are mobilized for the neighborhood school. They are mobilized. I mean, every week there is some petition in the neighborhood. Every week there is someone coming up with a new initiative. And this uh, is not identitarian or sectarian. No, and this, is, this is what our way of actually expressing our active citizenship. Yes. And, and actually, when you talk to them here, they definitely think of it as an extension of their politics. Mm-hmm. You know, they definitely live it as an extension of their politics. Mm-hmm. The fact that they are recycling is an extension of their politics. Part of that politics, you know, they get to exercise every four or five years when they go and vote. Yeah. But when you talk to people, they see it as they're being active and they're being active political agents every day through their... So, and I think this is what we need to sort of recognize. The problem is in a place like Lebanon, it's like, oh no, I'm not, you know, people think of it as, oh, I'm only an active, you know, 
political citizen every few years when they agree, when they give us that, you know, that privilege of going voting, because they also get to decide. Huh? They, they ignore the Constitution. They don't hold elections for years and years and years. And then they say, yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and that, that, is the, that is the inherent, uh, I think, uh, struggle. And you're right. You're right. Maybe there is an inspiration. The region is so diverse, so rich in, in, in our diversity and our, you know, from one another is a source of uh, richness. You know, for years, for decades, the autocratic regimes in the region, what they have tried to do is uniform us. Uh, you know, impose a sort of uh, a mold on everyone. This is what it means to be Iraqi. This is what it means to be Syrian. This is what it means to be Egyptian. Uh, erasing history, erasing beautiful, rich histories in the process. Uh, removing kind of the contradictions that we all have inside ourselves, our multiple identities, our multiple interests. And, and yeah, maybe, maybe Ras Beirut in, in, in its imagined and how maybe we've lived it and how we've imagined it is a form of resistance. Yes, yes, you know, maybe, uh, I mean, it's definitely prettier than, than Saddam's Baghdad or Assad's Damascus or Gaddafi's Tripoli. And, you know, and I think the... the it, it is the balance between secular and sectarian that you're describing at its core, the Levantine city, a cosmopolitan, diverse entity where people do share space, but they are all equal. And there's no group that is more important and there's no person that's above the rest. And uh, I think uh, I hold Ras Beirut dearly as well for, I mean, I consider that part of Beirut home, even though I don't always live there. I'm not always there, but I still think of it as the, as the shining example. I can say a lot of things, but Lebanon and Beirut in particular is a laboratory of ideas. Um, and, uh, you know, we have to cherish that and we have to test these things until we find something that actually works. And I have to say, I'm very excited. I mean, I, I don't feel far from Lebanon. I visit regularly. I read its news like other Arab countries that I work on now very closely. And I, and I um, you know, I, uh, I'm an optimist by nature. I think those that are most decent at their core and stick to truth as opposed to other means of persuasion, I think uh, feel exactly the same way. And I, I learn a lot from these optimistic voices. The passion for hope, even when it's very hard to find it. Anyway, thank you, Nadim. Thank you. Nadim's work is far from over, and he's currently in Paris running Arab Reform Initiative, taking what he learned from running Human Rights Watch for over a decade in Lebanon, and now applying it to the wider region. And the conversation often reflects on 2005, on the protests and the aftermath of the March 14 revolution. And 2005 cannot be discussed fully without referring to one key individual, and that's Samir Asir. And next week, we remain in Paris, and we'll be speaking with Ziad Mejid, a political ally and dear friend of Samir's. Ziad was active in the Democratic Left Movement, and he's currently professor at the American University of Paris, and writing eloquently about the human suffering in Syria and the power plays that keep the Assad regime intact and relevant. Samir Asir firmly believed that Lebanon's political story is tied to Syria's. Any attempt at reform in Lebanon and a form of governance that respects its citizens 
with accountability and bare minimum dignity requires a Syria without the Assad regime. And this week we focused on the human rights issue within Lebanon. And next week we take it a step further and talk about citizenry and political activism and how they measure in a post-war Lebanon under direct or indirect rule from Syria. I'm Rani Shatah and this is the Beirut Banyan. <laughs>